Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thank you so much for being with us. We're going to start with Afghanistan, the fall of Afghanistan, the embarrassment of the West. 20 years after driving out the Taliban, guess who's back? The Taliban. September 11th was the date scheduled for the total withdrawal of U.S. and allied forces from the country. That has been hurried up in the wake of a startlingly quick offensive by the Taliban and having them come into Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, this past weekend. For those of us of a certain age, it seems vaguely reminiscent of another withdrawal, that one from Saigon in 1975. We all know how that one turned out. Saigon is now Ho Chi Minh City, and there is no North and South Vietnam. How will Afghanistan turn out? Looks like, at least partially, we already know. It looks like the Taliban, our sworn enemies, will take over the country, and actually have taken over the country. This is the same Taliban we supposedly routed in the early stages of the conflict. Anybody remember Operation Enduring Freedom? For context, we need to go back to 2001, 20 years ago, and U.S. actions in the wake of the September 11th terror attacks. I'm talking about this for context, because so often things tend to get lost and people, particularly politicians, tend to forget. Officials identified al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden, as responsible for those September 11th attacks. At the same time, bin Laden was in Afghanistan under the protection of the Taliban. The U.S. demanded the government turn bin Laden over. When they refused, we invaded. Keep in mind that the invasion of Iraq, which was obviously much better publicized, did not happen until 2003. In Afghanistan at first, things seemed to go well. The U.S. vowed to support democracy and eliminate the terrorist threat coming from Afghanistan. And to an extent, they managed to do that. The Taliban, for their part, slipped away, some say to Pakistan. In the meantime, the group of anti-Taliban rebels known as the Northern Alliance, backed by U.S. and NATO forces, entered the Afghanistan capital of Kabul. It takes three years of negotiations to draft a new Afghan constitution, and Hamid Karzai, a tribal leader, became the new president. Five years later, President Barack Obama authorizes a major increase in the number of troops sent to Afghanistan. At its peak, 140,000 troops were deployed. Two years later, Osama bin Laden is killed, not in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan. Two years later, the founder of the Taliban, Mullah Omar, dies of apparently natural causes, again, reportedly in Pakistan. And there are long-standing rumors that his death was kept quiet for the better part of two full years. In, 27, uh, in 2014, that is, seven years ago, NATO formally ended its combat operations, and the U.S. also begins to withdraw thousands of troops. The following year, the Taliban launched an offensive, which included car bombings, assassinations, and the like. 
By the beginning of 2019, Afghan President Ashraf Ghani says more than 40,000 members of his security forces have been killed since 2014. One year later, the U.S. and allies forge an agreement with the Taliban that calls for a total troop withdrawal by September 11th. In a nutshell, that's pretty much where we are, except for a few really hard truths. The Taliban has gained strength and now reportedly controls the entire country. Now, whether they are actually prepared to govern Afghanistan is a very difficult and different question. It's one thing to be a fighter. It's something else to be a government official. And there are already reports of armed Taliban fighters going to the homes of civil servants and demanding that they come into work. Because the Taliban can't fix electricity. The Taliban can't arrange for food for people. The people that they are now going to be governing. And what has the West accomplished in this 20-year war? The answer? Not a hell of a lot. Around 2,300 Americans have died. With the number of civilians and Afghan military in the five figures each. Why hasn't the Afghan military been able to fight the Taliban and win? And obviously, win without help? One thing I keep seeing is that the Taliban appear to be quite well armed. Who's backing them with the money necessary to create and maintain supply chains good enough to have taken so much land so quickly throughout the country? very real question. Now, some will argue, well, they sell drugs, they do this, they engage in all kinds of illicit and illegal, I don't know how you define illegal, activity to make the money. But who is arming them? Where do they buy the weapons from? What is their supply chain? Because apparently the West never bothered to try and disrupt that supply chain. If you look back on the history of war, one of the things certainly warfare in the 20th century hinged on was an adequate supply. It's part of the reason why the Germans lost World War II. Their supply chain broke down. Taliban doesn't seem to have that particular problem. Now, very little of this, and it's sad to say, but very little of this will make any difference after the U.S. and British forces leave the country. And most of the forces have left. The bottom line is they're trying to get diplomats and Afghans who worked with the West out of the country at this point. And it is showing the same kind, we're seeing the same kind of heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching pictures of people trying to board airplanes and falling to their deaths, just as they did in some cases in Vietnam in 1975. It's sad. It is absolutely sad. And I got to tell you, a generation of Westerners have no clue how or why we were there in the first place. And that's sad. I, for one, am a peace-loving person. I'm glad the Taliban made a peace agreement that ended what seemed to be endless war. And they were fighting against the Afghan military, but apparently not so much. The Afghan military 
sort of gave up and left. And in fact, the Taliban have managed to confiscate large numbers of weapons and equipment that's left behind, that was left behind by the United States, by the British and others. There is going to be, and we know this now, a Taliban government running Afghanistan. The question for the West is, how do you deal with that? Certainly in the U.S., there are going to be backs and forths. Oh, it was Bush's fault for invading. Oh, it was was Obama's fault for the troop surge. Oh, it was Donald Trump for negotiating with the Taliban. Over and over. And of course, uh, if you're doing whack-a-mole, the last mole with his head above ground is Joe Biden. And Joe Biden stuck by a pledge to pull U.S. troops out. He's going to take a lot of flack for that. Absolutely. Was it the right decision? I am not in a position to say. I would rather have seen them pull out than to see them continue to fight, continue a frustrating and ultimately futile effort at nation building, which began 20 years ago, folks, 20 years ago. And unfortunately, the U.S. response seems to be one of complete and utter panic. Now, the Taliban have promised not to allow terrorism on their soil and to allow girls in particular, and we'll get to this in a minute, allow them to be educated. But the Taliban is certainly not necessarily going to negotiate with anybody, the United States, the British, the West, NATO, whoever, about what their core belief systems are. They believe in Sharia law. That means that there are certain things that they, they can say, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to allow kids to get educated, girls to get educated in particular. But the bottom line is they will determine what those kids are taught, but what those girls are taught. And those girls are going to be taught obedience, subservience, and any deviation from subservience will be dealt with very, very harshly. Now, no one wants to see a repeat of the fall of Saigon, yet that's what we see. As in Vietnam, we're going to be leaving behind resentful civilians in Afghanistan who will feel abandoned, and who will feel hopeless. Keep in mind, there are large swaths of the Afghan population who have never known peace in their lifetimes. No matter where global powers choose to intercede, no matter what the goals, what the end games, it's civilians, non-combatants, that are left to pick up the pieces. The Taliban will now govern with a new and swaggering mandate. They feel that they can oppress their enemies, which in some cases, I got to be honest, it seems to be women. And they're going to be able to do it the same way they did when they were in power 20 years ago. And you can talk about threatening them with sanctions and you can tell, you know, call them a pariah nation, this, that, and the other. They are very secure in what they want to accomplish with the Afghan people. Very secure. And as far as they're concerned, their religion underpins what they see as their victory here. 
keep that in mind. Their religion is what they feel drove them to victory. Now, this is the shame of it all. Because women in Afghanistan are forced to live under conditions no government should impose on its citizens. During the time they ruled the country from 1996 to 2001, they imposed draconian curbs on the rights of women. Women could not, for example, be seen in public without the presence of a male family member or wearing a burqa. Women were routinely pushed out of jobs in education, healthcare, and finance. Women who violated Taliban dictates could be publicly flogged or even killed. Women were not allowed to wear high heel shoes, lest a woman's footsteps excite a man. Like many past regimes that have oppressed women, and there have been many, many of the Taliban's rules of law are aimed at mollifying the base instincts of men. The base instincts of men. As they now take over the country and get ready to govern, they've been slightly and slowly reimposing gender oppression. Now, they say in peace negotiations, they're ready to give some ground. But if you talk to people in the north of Afghanistan, they'll tell you, as far as the Taliban is concerned, it's business as usual. Now, no matter what else happens, and we see what has happened, the United States and its allies need to support the brave women who are fighting for their basic rights in Afghanistan. It is as simple as that. There's no if, ands, or buts. We owe them at least that much, don't we? Up next, Governor Andrew Cuomo is out running the state. Will California's Gavin Newsom be next? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Before we get into Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom, let me say uh, I am so, so sad about what's happening in Haiti. A 7.2 magnitude earthquake, somewhere on the order of two to 3,000 people dead, a tropical storm taking dead aim at the country after the country's president was assassinated. Please, ladies and gentlemen, pray for Haiti. We had Johnny McCalla on with us a couple of weeks ago. He talked about the dimensions of the assassination. But right now, people are still, and I mean still in Haiti, trying to count up a death toll, trying to put their lives back together after yet another calamity in that country. And they've had many over the past decade. Now, last week, I told you I thought New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo would resign from office. There were quite a few people who disagreed, saying he'd fight to stay in office, and in fact, that he'd run for re-election next year. 
Hate to say I told you so, but Cuomo announced his resignation this week, effective August 24th. His legacy will be debated for a while to come. And, and keep in mind, there are people who still, after all that has happened, defend Andrew Cuomo for whatever sets of reasons, be they political, be they social, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, his history of harassing conduct toward women will be the lasting takeaway of his legacy. Where does he go from here? I'm not even sure he knows. He's reportedly looking for a place to live. At least he doesn't have to worry about a looming impeachment battle. And there's been quite a bit of controversy about that. The head of the state assembly, Carl Hasty, has decided not to proceed with an impeachment investigation. They are going to continue to investigate certain other things beyond the attorney general's report of sexual harassment, but they're not going to look at impeachment. And that has irritated a lot of people, including several of his victims, who said that the assembly, and Carl Hasty in particular, was being cowardly in not stepping up to the plate and looking to possibly impeach Andrew Cuomo. There are constitutional questions about this as to whether or not you can, in fact, impeach someone who has already left office. Uh, but be that as it may, that battle he is not going to have to fight. Now, in the meantime, the state's lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, will take over as governor. Even as Cuomo finished his rather tedious resignation speech, speculation began to mount about who would run for the governor's office next year. No one will say this early, that's what they're considering, but a number of names have been brought up in media, you know, because media loves to bring up names. One thing I think everyone needs to keep in mind, although the lieutenant governor's job is largely ceremonial, do not underestimate Kathy Hochul. She's about the only poll who has publicly announced she'll run next year, and she is going to make a formidable candidate, much more formidable than a lot of people in the media would say or even admit. She's a down, not, she is not, I should say, a downstate New Yorker. She's not from the city. She's not from the suburbs. But she is extremely popular in the western part of the state, you know, up there around Buffalo, places where New York City residents maybe only visit on honeymoons or vacations or whatever. She knows the levers of power in the state of New York and how best to use them. Her challenge will be to forge a relationship with the apparently soon-to-be mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. That might not be too hard, as both are from the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Another smart move would be to name a black person as lieutenant governor, who would then become her running mate in 2022. And looming behind all this is the redistricting that will come as a result of the 2020 census. In a startling development, that tally shows New York City gained a whopping 600,000 new residents, bringing the city's population to 8.8 million people. Never been that many. They used to always say there are 8 million stories, and in those days when they talked about 8 million, they were really talking about between 7.5 and 7.8. 8.8 is startling. Even though the state lost a congressional seat, the dynamic of new residents and voters will have a direct impact on who occupies the
the governor's mansion in New York. Across the country, California is also facing the possibility of a governor being pushed out of office. In this case, it's first-term Governor Gavin Newsom, and he's facing a recall vote. As in Afghanistan, context is important here. California is one of 19 states that allows the recall of state officials once a certain threshold of voters sign a petition demanding one. In California's case, that's 12% of those who voted in the last election. That having been met, the recall election is set for September 14th. It wasn't an easy task. Five times, Newsom's adversaries tried and failed to collect enough signatures. The sixth time in this case was the charm. And although there's only been a single recall that has succeeded out of 55 attempts since 1913 in California, this one has gathered steam during the pandemic. At first, people objected to Newsom's tough lockdown measures. In fact, the deadline for submitting recall petitions was extended by a judge because the lockdown made it tougher to gather signatures. In the interim, Newsom faced criticism from both those who felt the lockdown measures were too strict and people in his own party who thought he wasn't acting fast enough to tamp down infections and deaths. Then Newsom, at least politically, shot himself in the foot. He attended a dinner party at a trendy French restaurant in Napa Valley. The dinner was replete with bigwig lobbyists and donors and the very mask requirements Newsom imposed were flaunted. He admitted it was a mistake, but the damage was done. In addition, the state was swamped with fake unemployment claims on his watch. So who's looking to beat him? There are a wide variety of candidates, from a porn actress to the former mayor of San Diego to Caitlyn Jenner to black conservative talk show host Larry Elder. And that's a black conservative talk show host. Two things mitigate in favor of Newsom keeping his job. One, the state has shown a surprising budget surplus recently, allowing him to spread cash throughout the state in the form of his $100 billion California comeback plan. If I was a gambling man, which I'm not, I'd bet Newsom survives the recall. But the margin will be closer than a lot of people think. If he stays in office... We'll see what lessons he's learned. And finally, lawsuits challenging bans on mask mandates, most notably in Florida and Texas. And guess which side Joe Biden's on? This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Florida and Texas. Together, they account for a staggering 40% of all coronavirus hospitalizations in the United States. And yet, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas remain steadfast in their opposition to mask mandates. And now, the battleground has shifted to schools in both states. DeSantis has threatened sanctions against any school district that mandates mask wearing. Some parents have responded by suing the governor. 
citing the number of students being forced to quarantine because they've come in contact with someone who tests positive. And now the feds have stepped in. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona sent both governors and their education chiefs a letter expressing concern about their conduct in banning mask-wearing mandates. He also said pandemic relief money could be used to make up any shortfall should either governor impose financial penalties. Because there are some school boards, both in Texas and in Florida, who have just said, hey, later for these guys, we are going to impose mask mandates for the safety of our children. President Biden himself has expressed support for districts who make mask wearing mandatory. Is this really, really how low politics has sunk in this country? Really? Here you have two Donald Trump toads who are fully prepared to risk the lives of children to further their own ridiculous agenda. They say parents are the ones who should decide whether or not their children wear masks to school. What nonsense. The educators and administrators are following the best science available to keep all their students as safe as possible. DeSantis in Florida is trying to have the parents' lawsuit dismissed, saying it infringes on his executive branch authority and that the parents have political motivations. No, Governor, the parents have safety motivations. And as far as political motivations, yeah, right, like you don't have any. Same is true of Abbott in Texas. A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that there seems to be a really strange correlation between governors and other officials who are pushing voter suppression and uh, anti-mask and anti-vax policies as well. They all seem to fit so swimmingly together. It's a right-wing mindset that seems to appeal to many Americans. It's an agenda that's opposed to health care for all, a rational policy on immigration, workers' rights, etc., etc., etc. These two governors, DeSantis and Abbott, have thrown down a gauntlet. It may be too much to ask that they be cast out of office at the polls. One can only hope that people in goodwill, people of goodwill, that is, in Texas and Florida, have the guts to curb their excesses. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.